Hello there, uh, Vector Podcast, Season 2. I hope that uh, you were waiting for a new episode. And today I'm really happy uh, about my guest and the topic because um, in many ways we didn't cover it in depth, uh, as much in depth as I think and hope we can cover it today. It's the topic of data, the role of data. Uh, uh, while everyone is talking about sexy deep learning, uh, chat GPT, uh, learning to rank new algorithms and so on, uh, I still believe that we should not forget about where all these things begin, and this is data. Um, and I'm happy to have uh, and welcome uh, Evgenia Sukadolskaya, uh, data advocate at Taloka, today with me. Hi, Evgenia, how are you doing? Thank you, Dima. Thank you. I am super happy to talk it. I'm very pre-Christmasy mood. So I'm feeling like I'm just having a little chit-chat before vacation. Yes, exactly how it should be. And I'm really happy uh, to have you here. Um, we met at uh, Haystack conference and this was this was great. I saw so much excitement in you uh, when you talked about, hey, but what about data? <laughs> we should also talk about it. Uh, don't forget it. Um, and, and I'm re really excited to, to, to drill into this today with you. Um, I think let's start as we usually start with your background and then we roll from there. Okay, perfect. Yeah, at Haystack, I, I think I literally like formulated my passion that I want to talk about search in the means of the data. So I'm feeling like today I'm getting a pre present for Christmas. So yeah, um, about me, um, I am this person, this uh, type of a person which got his perfect uh, position by chance because I never knew it existed. Uh, because I finished bachelor's in machine learning and I was like, okay, if I did so, I need to work like around it, you know, but at this point, uh, everybody was, everybody is always hyping on something in machine learning, you know, so at that point, I mean, I finished in 2019, so it was like a very big era of guns and like others and everybody wanted to work with the computer vision and I didn't, so I thought, okay uh maybe i need to start like working somewhere in the field and see what i will like and by some chance i started working as a software developer i don't know why just you know like out of the blue you're a student you're getting your first job then i kind of realized after some time that i'm doing more like business analytics talking tasks and consulting through doing the development also and i like both and I was like, okay, so I don't want to be just a developer. And I switched to a position which was called technical manager, which was like something in between analyst and uh, uh, also a person who like manages like some projects with people. And also at that time, that was the first time I tried to do crowdsourcing, like related to our projects, because we were doing uh, tasks about moderation. And uh, with moderation, it actually you need a lot of data, like labels and checked on the quality because it's a very hard task. But something still was off because here I wasn't using enough machine learning. And I was like, but I studied it. Okay, then I switched to machine learning engineer. I mean, it sounds like I'm hopping on and hopping off, but it was like some periods of time. It was amazing. I had an amazing head. I am still very grateful to him. He like, teach me much about machine learning in the production. But at this point, I realized that I lost some of the knowledge that I like received back. So I applied for the master's program in the actually Munich. Uh, now I'm studying at the 
Technical University of München uh, on the also kind of machine learning program. And also I felt that I am not speaking enough, you see? So I'm like always like speaking enough, not email enough, not this enough. And at some point my like uh, colleagues who I knew back back then and they were working at that point in Toloka, they said, hey Jenny, how about you will work with us as a data advocate? And I was like, what is that? <laughs> like even I'm going to Germany, I am not, uh, I don't know what is that, what it's about. And they're like, oh, that would be perfect for you because you can do machine learning and researching, but you also can speak. And I am so happy that it literally happened because last year and some time that I was like there working with the data, working with crowdsourcing, working with search, because I also have like some past experiences when I was a machine learning engineer, I actually was working uh, with the search recommendations a little bit. So all of this combined in one perfect profession. So I would say I'm a very happy person. <laughs> this is super great. Uh, and it sounds like you are in, in the warm waters of like what you really want to do at the same time. I think it's still a very demanding uh, role and, and, and then field. Um, and so you are basically still doing some ML, right? But you also advocate for data. Can you expand a oh, bit on, on what you do? Oh yeah, it's actually like everything in a like all in one, like, you know, this shampoos with conditioner and shampoo in body wash and everything, because uh, I have some freedom at my uh, position to choose what I wanna like study now. Uh, so for example, I chose like going to the search conferences and talk about it because I had some experience. I really love the idea of comparing crowdsourcing and uh, uh, machine learning models in some particular tasks. For example, let's think about the adversarial attacks. It's interesting how far we can expand with them, like detecting them by machine learning and detecting them by humans. And uh, like these different comparisons where the crowd wins, where the like manual labeling, where the machine learning wins, it's a question which is in general interesting, especially now with ChatGPT, when everybody is like, oh my God, AI is conscious. Okay, close everything, fire all the software engineers, we are done. So it's super interesting to explore that. And I am always like reading articles about this, uh, attending a talks about this, also doing myself some talks. Plus, uh, of course, I am also participating in development of our company because uh, Toloka started as a data labeling company, but now it's expanding much more in the means that we also started designing like ML tools on the top of it. Because when you're having such a resource, you know, of uh, like a human manual labeling in your, basically in your, I don't know how to say in your basement, but it sounds creepy. <laughs> yeah, you can use it for transfer learning or for some other like interesting tasks. And uh, yeah, we expanded a lot and it's very interesting to assist on these processes and uh, to come and to talk about this and also in the means of uh, still manual labeling in assistance to AI and ML developing currently. Yeah, this is fantastic. And and when somebody approaches Toloka and, and or like maybe you just create an account, I guess, and, and you start, you know, creating projects and so on. I think many, many things go into the process, like starting from uh, the price, right? How how economical it can be, right? Do I have any control over this? Uh, but also uh, in terms of, uh, for example, the outcome, you know, the quality of labels that I will get. Um, how, how do you usually sort of structure the process? Is there some 
general recipe that Taloka would offer to any user? And maybe on top of that, you would offer some uh, additional service, so to say, right? Or advice to, to a company. Is there something around that you could, you could share with us? Oh, I would say I can talk nonstop, but in general, it's like this. Firstly, uh, of course, when you're deciding that you need manual labeling for some reason, uh, like some data sets, you, you need to understand that you actually need that because it doesn't mean that for every task that they're existing, just use data-centric approach, throw in data because nothing is uh, tops up this. That's not correct, of course. Uh, you can be free using like open source data. You can be free using synthetic data because it's cheap. You're just generating it yourself. Uh, but sometimes in a lot of domains, you uh, don't have enough uh, available data for some specific domains. Uh, and it's hard to gather it or generate it. Or sometimes you need a human creation over curation over the uh, machine learning processes, for example, for monitoring or like with ChatGPT, for example, it's like a hot topic. Uh, I've seen such a thread in Twitter, how people try to ask it for some like really, really dangerous stuff and check if it will provide it and it did. So like, you know, we still need a human creation over like the data gathered by MLAI mechanisms. So in this case, if you feel like you have a need to gather a data set for your specific problem and you don't know where to start, here is crowdsourcing platforms. And for example, in Toloka, uh, it is the platform which was created uh, from engineers to engineers. So it's uh, not about like the only model is business. So you're coming to us, we're consulting you and you're going away. No, uh, we're actually super happy if you're like trying to deal with it yourself because we have an open API and it's more about mechanisms than speaking with manual labelers. It's like literally about like handling the crowds with a mechanisms of filtering and etc. So uh, usually to start, uh, you need to register and then we have uh, huge tons of tutorials and education programs. And also we have a community which uh, like my team handles actually and we'll love there to discuss any problems or questions. Uh, but I would say like we try to implement in the platform already uh, simple steps that help you to do it pretty intuitively without studying much uh, your first labeling project and set it up and let it run. So there are like inbound instructions on every step. There are like some little video or some little text instructions telling the good practices. So we try to make it as simple. Like I, I actually saw it developing because when I started using Toloka, there wasn't any of this. And now it's like impressive how they changed everything. <laughs> Yeah, I can I can imagine, um, and and so inside Taloka, I mean Taloka, if I consider Taloka as as the package product that I that I get access to, um, you know, inside it, I presume you have the labeling um, editor or component, whatever is it that you are calling it, um, that I can flexibly load any data format, right, and also any vertical like from computer science to audio to text, um, time series maybe, and so on. Um, what, what, what does it take for, you know, the way I imagine it, this in my head is that let's say this is, this is a team that hasn't had experience with labeling before, but they realized the importance of it in their project. Um, so they will not be professionals in this space. Um, uh, 
what what do they need to think about when they prepare the data? Maybe quantity, maybe you recommend them to start with smaller quantity. How should they reason about format and should they first go and watch all the tutorials or can they somehow intuitively follow the UI? I would say like this, like, of course, crowdsourcing a little bit, like aligning it reminds me a little bit of training the machine learning model. You need to spend some time tuning, of course. But uh, yeah, it's for the different data types. That's firstly addressing your like comments. It's for different data types. It's for like audio, text, uh, video, etc. And uh, like uh, it can be used for multiple use cases, like gathering data sets for voice assistants and like for self-driving cars. Or like as I hope we will still stick to the main name of the podcast, then we will talk about search relevance <laughs> with a human labeling. Uh, but like, yeah, let's imagine your team is uh, on the rack of creating a project and they realized we need human labeling, but they never saw the platform. Um, I would say that the most important thing to consider is to start thinking in the means of decompositioning of the task. Uh, it's a key thing in the, any crowdsourcing tasks that not like it's pretty scalable. So the amount is not a problem. It's not that expensive. You can set up reasonable prices and it will be pretty much cheap. Uh, but uh, the one thing that is very important, if you make task too complicated, like as you would to, for example, having in-house experts and you can ask them whatever and they will think of the rest. Here, you're working with people which are not committed specifically to provide you something more than you ask from them. So tasks should be simple and they should be well-defined. So that is the thing that you need to a little bit train on thinking of how to decomposition task and for example, like, if you offer it to a person who is not in your area of the studies, that you will be sure that he still can do it without special pre-training, maybe just reading the instruction or like completing some exam. And uh, the rest is pretty much covered by the platform because now there are like specific mechanics which predefine your settings for you not making uh, mistakes on like, giving away money to the crowds or like doing the interfacing correctly because we try to implement as much testing in-house as possible. And uh, the interface, the like the program where you configure the interface, it is done pretty much in, into intuitive sense. So you don't have to like learn JavaScript or HTML or anything. It's done just in basic building blocks, which can be like changed in places and grouped together in some nice looking interface. So I hope uh, the most of the burden is just to start thinking differently. It's like, you know, it's like with uh, programming. Sometimes there was a moment when I learned Haskell in my life and I had to completely like reprogram my mind because it's such a different language in the means of programming. You need to think differently. The same is with crowdsourcing. You need to think of decomposing. That is the most important thing. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, uh, Haskell, functional mathematical <laughs> yeah it's so my god <laughs> yes uh but probably beautiful too um yeah uh this sounds great so it does sound like a self-service in many ways um and now that you called out search which is also very dear to my heart and i'm glad it is the same for you um so let's start with with the basics you know like 
I have a search engine. I have users. I've got log, logs, right? So what I can do is that I can actually record for every search uh, the position where the click happened, right? So what we returned, what was the click? And so I have plenty of data, assuming I have plenty of users. Why do I need another data set? Can you convince me? What am I missing? Oh, here I would say uh, manual labeling is much more about using, not creating a new data set from the scratch, but evaluating your uh, abilities of ranking your queries in your search correctly. Because as far as I understand, a lot of like, uh, there are like a lot of uh, ranking very sophisticated algorithms existing uh, now in search engines. They like starting from the simple like search, like I don't know, cosine similarity between like documents and a query and everything, which was like some past time. Now people are creating vector databases and uh, it's super sophisticated, but still we have search, we have recommendations, we have like some order of queries, which user expects to receive. I mean, user doesn't expect to receive some order, but it, uh, user expects to see the right answer as like closer to him as possible not like searching through the five pages. So for that, uh, specifically uh, human evaluation on top of the uh, implicit signals evaluation, like clicking, it's uh, very crucial. And I can try to elaborate on that. Uh, how do you think, like from your perspective, uh, like do we need the, if if you, like you're creating a search engine, do you think we need uh, also to make humans see the like ranking results, or you think that clicks and uh, buys, if we're talking about ecom, is enough? Well, if I play the continue to play the uh, devil's advocate, you know, <laughs> you are the data advocate. I, I'm the devil's advocate here. In principle, I already have users, so they will tell me with their clicks. They vote with clicks, right? So um, I might as well just uh, measure you know, the sort of the pl plot this click-through rate or something else and, and then see what's going on, right? So that will be my probably online metric. Um, but I guess when you when you talk about uh, human labeling, you uh, infer that there is an importance in offline evaluation as well, right? Oh, yeah. I am like, you know, this asking this rhetorical question, like we need it, right? Right? But actually, I can uh, give some motivation behind it. So actually, it's a very interesting thing uh, about the, what uh, human clicks uh, actually mean. Uh, we can return to it because recently I had this um, uh, meetup about biases, and uh, it was also about like human clicking. And one of the very interesting uh, talks that we had at our meetup was about like position bias. So the humans are just tend to click on something that they are offered because they're taught that uh, the things that are offered like at the top positions are exactly what they need. But it doesn't mean that that's exactly what they need. And they may, may be dissatisfied with that, but they're just learned to like, you know, follow the general way of how search engines and the e search engines work. So technically, uh, Online metrics, they make a lot of sense, of course, because like by clicks and by buys, you can predict uh, most of the behavior and it's pretty fast and it's automated. I mean, like A-B testing, blah, blah, everybody knows that. 
the one thing that it doesn't cover it's uh, firstly explicit signals like you can you can't talk by the clicks and bytes as a whole overall about the human satisfaction the satisfaction score because uh, it's not like they are explicitly asked uh, in general like uh, do you like this do you like this search result maybe you wanted something else maybe you wanted more maybe you wanted to be recommended something else and uh, yeah, the other things that uh, sometimes, like if we're like doing some assumption about the like in A/B testing, for example, that we change some interface and we're doing by some clicks and by some assumption, sometimes we can uh, by introducing new features pretty much hurt our uh, product because it's happening in real life and users see the changes. They're like the ranking, how it differs now with the new feature, and they're getting super like uh, dissatisfied. And, and humans, they're not like, you know, um, forgiving easily. <laughs> like, if they see problems in your search engine, they might say, ah, I'm not using it again. No, thank you. So, uh, like, uh, some reasons of uh, why would applying labeling be better, you can experiment much more on it because, like, oh, have you noticed the feature in Zoom that if I'm doing that, it's actually noticing by the neural network and uh, offers me this. <laughs> that yeah, is amazing. Cool. Oh my God. That. Okay, that's, life. yeah, we're really in the, like this is the time of the artificial everything. So yeah. I got super amused, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's good, that's so, good. It's serendipity, yeah. yes. Yeah, so, uh, Firstly, with offline labeling, uh, you can definitely experiment more because you can try different features without harming the end to end users of your system, of your engine. And uh, secondly, you can check how they're satisfied, what they do like, actually explicitly ask them, what do you think about this? Because when you're just uh, guessing their behavior by their like some implicit things like where the eyes look and how much they click, you can do much more mistakes because you know, as as it says, we we can't get into another's human head, but we can at least try to ask, and then that probably will be closer to the reality. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if we don't, if we, so, what you're saying is that we, if because usually in search engines, in a way, we skip that step of asking. Yeah, we could integrate some give thumbs up or thumbs down approach but it might also be still rather implicit and uh, not explaining everything we want to get um but basically like you know yeah i just remember that i was reading pretty much interesting articles recently about the recommendation systems and implementing in them using them more about uh, behaviorism of the people like uh, not just uh, giving them the most popular results or the most uh, desired by the similar by some features results like in the collaborative filtering but uh, sometimes we need to give humans the result that they are not thinking of but they it will make their like for example health or life better because you know this problem of recommender systems when you're like used to clicking on something at some point recommender system starts offering you the same pool of things you're kind of stuck in this yeah and that's why like uh, using more like sometimes and uh, the authors of this paper, they were suggesting that we need to sometimes ask humans in explicitly, uh, did they like what they were recommended and do they understand why it was recommended to them? And maybe they want to change track of the recommendations. 
So that's why we shouldn't stick just to online metrics. But yeah, also the second grand reason why offline metrics are good, you can experiment without harm uh, very fast because like online metrics, they're usually taking like two weeks for something. Uh, you need to wait for the statistical tests to make some like results which are significant. And here you can test it much more faster and you can perform even offline A-B testing uh, by the offline manual label data, which will cause less harm because the real users won't see your mistakes. Yeah, I think this strikes a chord with me for sure. So it's like you don't really, because there is always a cost to pay when you go online uh, that you actually deliberately um, potentially harming someone ex someone's experience to learn whether your contra is it called contrafactual like your change in the algorithm is good or bad uh, yeah it reminds me i am sorry i'm so talkative today but it reminds okay. me of the uh, when i was working in moderation of advertisements here it's very crucial to make mistake online because there are like two different options otherwise you're like showing to the end to end users the advertisements with uh, things which are like you aren't supposed to show like drugs uh, i don't know some uh, buffoonery some yellow news something that is like dangerous or just like stupid on the other hand if you're not letting some like through the moderation some healthy content through you're losing money of the companies which are like having a deal with you and your own so here you need to be very cautious with any online experiments you pretty much doing everything online or offline and you need to very much monitor how your machine learning algorithms doing the evaluation because environment changes a lot in the, like you know in the advertisement world uh, new laws are incoming uh, very fast people like people are in like they are impressively good at avoiding all of the boundaries when they need to fraud something so imagine every day there are like new existing algorithms of creating some advertisements which are passing the machine learning algorithm block blocking the fraud and everything so you need to adapt very fastly and for that you and for uh, offline experimenting you of course need offline data and applying labeling very much. Yeah, I, I slowly start to wake up from my devil's advocate role. So uh, <laughs> so I should stop being careless and uh, not only rely on the data that I see in production, uh, because in a way it's like prime time for my product and I should be careful about, it's not just de de deploying something once and it stays there forever and chat GPT takes care of everything. Um, but it actually is something that I will need to evolve. Uh, and, and this is where the crowdsourcing approach may help me to do more economical, more uh, less intrusive as well. This is really good. Um, let, let's, um, um, let's maybe try to make it a little bit more concrete, right? And let's, uh, let's emulate, let's play this game. Um, can you verbally visualize, describe, let's, let's say I'm developing a, uh, I don't know, flower search engine. I don't want to say e-commerce. I don't want to say something specific. So let's say I'm, I'm searching, I'm offering flowers and uh, I would like to search them, uh, our users to search them. Um, 
I guess, can you propose sort of a framework of thought how I should approach the crowdsourcing? So let's say, what should I focus on? Can I choose a metric, offline metric that you will recommend? Would you like to, you know, do, do you think that there is some specific thing that I could try to connect with my business goals? like a metric that will be reflective of my business goals? Or would you start with something, just something, like, I don't know, NDCG or whatever, and go go from there? Oof, it's a very, very, very long topic to discuss, but let's start from somewhere. Uh, so in my perspective, like, of course, like you're doing your engine, it's at some point, of course, you're implementing some, like uh, online labeling, oh, I'm sorry, online evaluation, and like you have some somewhere to start. And here you come into the position where you need to do some offline labeling. So there is like uh, this, I would say, like a circle, uh, which uh, like uh, in the parts of which you can, like you can picture your pipeline, pipeline as a circle, which goes in infinity, and it has the several parts. Uh, so it has the ranking part when you're deciding like about like how you want to perform your ranking. What is your ranking means? What do you want to show the most? Uh, what is your like um, how many positions people do see? Uh, what do you want them to see the first? What is relevant? What is irrelevant? And you're like selecting some end-to-end -end metric that you want to use. And there are like usually some popular metrics you noticed uh, like uh, MDCG. So like this, this, this cumulative gain uh, metrics is a very popular and nice way to start there. Uh, there are like even like more simple ones, just uh, evaluating about the precision and recall of your position uh, of the elements uh, arising in your like ranking uh, list resulting. And there can be even more sophisticated approaches like expected reciprocal rank, for example, metrics, if you heard of it. It's like more cascade approach because you know that people are not clicking through after some certain position. But think we're talking about flowers. I would say it's like it's more about like image search, simple one, uh, which has like some certain type of definitive answers. And it's not like people are going to... Uh, it's like with searching some items when you're like finding what you desire and then you're not scrolling down. Maybe with flowers, you just want to see. So I would say, uh, I mean, see them, like download them or something. So I would say in DCG sounds pretty good at the beginning as a basics. And then you can adapt these metrics based on what are you really interested in. Maybe you have some advertisements on some of the flowers or something. Um, then the next part after you define what are you want to do, for example, you like, which metric you want to evaluate, what do you want to see, like what do you want to compare, uh, you think uh, about like what do you need uh, for human labeling, how do you need to sample data, what will be the result, how you need to aggregate it, and how do you need to like uh, use this information in your product. And uh, then it comes like for example for Indicigi, you usually need some ideal ranking to compare uh, your ranking to. So here comes exactly the crowdsourcing, the manual labeling, because you can gather this ideal ranking from them and then do a comparison on the uh, your real search engine answers. So, okay, we define the goal. We want an ideal ranking of flowers by this query. Uh, 
and not one query because like for example just one query is kind of i don't know super simple and you want to evaluate it in general so here comes the sampling and uh, how you can approach sampling of uh, your queries and the results of your uh, search engine can be very different you can just try to sample the most popular flowers and queries uh, but it's usually not the best approach just because like the most popular queries are usually very well handled and uh, they are very simple because like when the people are matching in the in their desires it means that it's not a very complicated thing <laughs> so uh like there is like a huge tale of very rare queries which you also want to consider i guess in evaluation in like the ideal ranking so here comes like two techniques for example reservoir sampling or even like stratified sampling i would say i mostly recommend using stratified sampling adapted uh, by like your own analytics of the situation and your own needs uh, this one allows to like um, to very like shortly explain it without like digging deep it's just you have like your own data the whole amount of these queries with their like how, how often they're asked how popular they are and you're doing like some bins of them based on the popularity and you try to sample equally from the each bin but these bins are different sized based on the general popularity of each items so we have the kind of like you're kind of uh, modeling the distribution of the data in your engine uh, by sampling like this so after you have this uh, data sampled uh, you need to think how to present it to like manual labeling what do you want to ask you like you want some ideal ranking yes um, there is an option to give them like for example query and the like the first 10 or 20 results that uh, your engine returns. Um, it depends like how many results depends on the click through rate, uh, which you can like, for example, estimate by um, you have a data about uh, how users click, how far they click in your like length of your uh, search results. And you can estimate that after like, I don't know, 15th position, it's not interesting usually to anyone. So you cannot worry about uh, it very much. But here, like you see, if you're giving the whole list uh, to uh, end user in crowdsourcing and saying, OK, rank me it's, uh, from like the most relevant to least relevant, as I was saying before, decomposition is very important. And this task of ranking is very hard because even like I am having like some degree, like I have bachelor's and master's. I think I am generally like educated person to some extent. I am not sure, you know, but uh, if somebody says to me, okay, this is the flower like this, there is 15 pictures, can you please uh, like uh, rank them from the most suitable to the least suitable, I would be all like, oh my God, I can't do that because it's too much. So uh, there's like other approaches, uh, either like uh, taking a specific item which returned uh, by your system, taking a query and uh, answering are they like relevant or irrelevant together is it a matching or unmatching pair it's much simpler it's very good understandable by the crowd uh, but the problem is that here you can't kind of compare items with the same relevancy because like it says like okay this relevant and this relevant and you're like okay what should i put on top this one or this one you can ask people to give like some percentage of relevancy from their head but still 
different people think differently. So it's kind of hard very much to aggregate the results. So the most uh, nice approach I would say would be a pairwise comparisons. Uh, so you're like giving a query, you're giving two answers and you says, okay, what, what's you, what's you better. And then uh, by these pairwise comparisons, you can do a whole ranking then by aggregating these pairwise comparisons in the manner of the list uh, with like from uh, the most uh, relevant part to the least relevant. And of course, if you're doing this uh, pairwise comparisons, honestly, like how it's supposed to be, it's n squared amount of entities, which is like uh, tons of entities. So usually our um, suggestion is to do like more in the weak sort uh, or like other sort manner with n log n. So like doing a hard estimation of these pairwise comparisons, uh, sampling a little bit less, but still you can uh, like have in the end the pretty, pretty good estimated uh, like ranking list. So you create this assignment, you have this pairwise comparisons, you have the results, you can estimate the quality of results based by how like this particular user is good with this particular assignments. And then you're aggregating it. Uh, there are like some models that you can use for aggregating, for example, like mathematical models, statistical models, like for example, Bradley-Terry or something. Uh, we did it actually in our crowd kit. Uh, it's a thing for pretty much we try to do an open uh, library in Python for every type of crowdsourcing annotations, not only to local ones. Uh, so you can implement it yourself or, for example, take some library, even ours. And uh, then you got your ideal ranking as you desired. And you can compute the metrics uh, like compared to your ideal ranking. So how good your search engine returns uh, like on these samples and these samples, how good are the results of these flowers, how relevant they are. And then you see uh, like what is the overall result. It might be good or not very good. If it's not very good, you, for example, can uh, select some domains when you see the most mistakes and try to um, like ask the crowd or in some separate projects, domain-wise, like, uh, where are the mistakes exactly? Maybe you have problems with uh, like defining the color of this flower, or maybe you have problems with like good lightning on the photos and you can figure out what is exactly the problem. And uh, yeah, you can use this uh, manual labeling firstly for evaluating the metrics from time to time and to see how your uh, search engine improves with uh, like including new features and changing the searching algorithms. And you can also train on this uh, manually labeled data your ML models, which perform ranking. So I would say it like it works kind of like this. Yeah, this is this is um, great. It it does sound like a very structured uh, process. What you explained, uh, but but I do want to drill into maybe a couple of specifics. So one is, uh, I believe, in DCG is is definitely I think it's um, prosa that. Uh, in principle, if I was communicating this to some management in my team, I could say that yesterday we were at 75% and today we are at 76%. So we are improving, right? And this is on a percent scale. If I remove the, the letter N from this formula, then this becomes like an absolute scale and there is no way to tell are we progressing or are we regressing. Uh, but at the same time, again, wearing my devil's advocate suit here for a moment. NDCG has a problem that 
if let's say I have a scale of labels from zero to three, right? So zero, one, two, three. So zero meaning completely relevant result and three meaning completely relevant, perfect result. If I um, receive two ratings, one with all, all ones, right? So all ones. Mm -hmm. And the other one is with all threes. So all ones, it's kind of like a suboptimal result, nothing better in the least, but at the same time, not perfect. And the other one is absolutely perfect. And DCG yields exactly the same number. Because if, only if we, uh, you rightly mentioned about um, optimal, perfect ranking. So if my perfect ranking equals in length exactly the, the visible labeled area, then the formula in DCG will, will uh, yield 100% in both cases. And this is kind of like a problem. And you, you touched on this um, in that part where you say that we need to make sure to construct this uh, perfect uh, order of results, right? So how, how long it should be? Let's say if I show 10 flowers on the screen, um, 10 bouquets, whatever. Um, how how long that perfect list should be? 30, 100? Is there any recommendation? I would say like, uh, as I mentioned before, firstly, you can use the metrics, which is like expected reciprocal rank, which is exactly talking about the moment when the user lose attention. And after that, you can make mistakes, but they're just not reaching it. Uh, and uh, for evaluation, this like the moment of uh, the termination of the interest, uh, you can exactly, I think, pre-evaluate it with uh, like, if you have some any data, uh, you can pre-evaluate it by the clicks. Uh, so you can give like any item some weight by the reach through in general, and then just predict in general how much like uh, general user, how many items your general users like look through before they're satisfied with the result. And maybe over time, this uh, actually amount will be decreased because your ranking will be more perfect. Uh, but you also can try to emulate the same experiments with actually the crowdsourcing and just to see how like to give them some certain amount of uh, objects. Why I'm talking about this actually, because recently when we had this uh, talk about biases, uh, the presenter uh, for testing his hypothesis on the click-through, he uh, created a project in Soloka where he had like the query uh, movie and the recommendations, which were like around uh, 20 or like 30. And he looked, uh, are there clicking through uh, until some, I mean, they also were like ordered like in the search engine and he looked like how, how far they're clicking through to check the hypothesis of the position bias. So in general, you can also try to um, test your hypothesis online with a click metrics and see how to like choose this position and then test it offline. But one additional thing, when we're talking about business, we're in general also talking about budgets. So. Of course, the more you need to evaluate, still the cost will rise just because you're like you're offering more data to crowd and crowd needs to like to do more assignments, so it's becoming more costly. Uh, so I would say I would like estimate the amount that you need, uh, that you uh, not that you need the amount of the click through, and then maybe cut it based on your like um, 
in general estimate the costs of manual labeling and try to align them a little bit because still uh i would say the result might be not like 100 percent perfect in the means that people are reaching like farther and seeing the mistakes but it still will be a big improvement if you catch a mistake in the top ranking like um, positions yeah i think connected to this um there is a notion of disagreement between annotators, right? So what is relevant for you might be completely relevant to me. And I, I, I want to see the, for the same query, I want to see the results in different order. Uh, I think one of the suggestions I've heard of how you could construct this perfect uh, list is actually you can take and uh, concatenate all of the rankings given by independent annotators for the same query and then resort them in the order that makes it perfect from the top to the bottom. Of course, you will still have issues with ties, right? So if you have three, three threes, then how should you order them? But at least they will be visible on the screen. So maybe that's fine um, or maybe not, who knows? But it, at the same time, you kind of like achieve this perfect list, which incorporates the wisdom or the wishes of other people that have been in the same sort of group. Have, have you experimented something around these lines or do you think it's sensible to do this? Uh, to experiment with uh, which part, with uh, checking the who I'm working with or with reordering or with, with your with, with, with constructing your perfect list, right? Because for NDCG, you need that uh, perfect list to divide by, right? In the formula. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. So have we experimented with the length of this list, you're asking me? No, in this case, I think I'm actually describing that specific way of building it, that you take a sub-lists from different people that annotated ah. the same query, then you stack them together, and then you sort them, right? Oh, by, it's, or, by oh it's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's a very interesting approach. I would say that I myself never experienced uh, such of a technique which sounds very interesting, but uh, we're usually just doing like, I usually did uh, more like aggregation by um, uh, the models, which are uh, not like concatenating, but the taking into the account in the general, the quality of the user in this ranking problem. And so when you're doing an aggregation, you're just uh, like more leaned towards a user who are um, proficient in ranking in general. So you trust him as an end-to-end -end good user of the search. So for example, when one person said all threes and one said all ones, but I know that this three guy is in general good at this, I will just take his one as an ideal labeling. Yeah, this is, this is the exciting part. You're tapping into the topic of quality of annotators, uh, which is super, super important. Um, at the same time, you could teach the annotators if you have them in-house, but if you have them external, you kind of do not have control over who gets what task. So how exactly, uh, maybe Taloka or what, what kind of methodology should I apply to measure the quality of each annotator? What are the components there? It's actually like, I would say it's a very, very, um, like it's a very big system in the means that you need to not only measure quality, but also like uh, keep your projects uh, 
um, protected from the fraud and from the people who specifically want to break quality, not just they're like making a human mistakes, but they're really, really trying to scam with your data. So there are like uh, different techniques, uh, starting from the super simple ones, like anti-fraud ones, which are like uh, looking how fast are you labeling? Uh, are you labeling with the same uh, non-human distribution of the labels? Like clicking only like uh, one option until it just goes forever. Or like even sometimes it's checking of how you're like, uh, how is your behaviors like, uh, in general with like different projects with annotating how your mouse works or something like this. So it's this and also there are like, of course, general exams, uh, checking your language proficiency, checking your proficiency in writing, checking your proficiency in some other skills, which are also building up uh, some certain, I would say, por portrait of a good labeler, because if you're like able to um, provide the, the good results in the some skills, uh, which are like around this problem, like you're good with this or this, that means that you're in general won't be at least a broader and you have a chance to succeed in these tasks. And then the main mechanism, which is used in the most of the tasks where you have categories like classification or something. Um, when we're working with uh, categorical tasks, we know the ground truth answers. It of course doesn't happen with ranking because with ranking we don't know like uh, it's a very subjective manner what do you prefer this or this but with uh, but you can of course uh, actually uh, create an obvious examples uh, like very obvious so when you know like some ground truth you can hide you can shuffle in these um, examples of the tasks with the answers which you know and you can like hiddenly shuffle them in between the assignments so people will complete them without noticing it because like it's uh, hidden by the API and everything and by the percentage of the examples that they evaluated correctly you can kind of estimate their skills because you know that like in general for this class they're giving the right answers and the second technique which uh, also works good for the more creative, I would say, uh, or gathering assignments, for example, when you need to take a picture or when you need to do an assignment outdoors, for example, go and check there is like a building on the some sort of place for like a maps up. Uh, there you can uh, do even more tricky thing and uh, uh, tell the crowd, evaluate the other crowd. So you're creating a specific validation project with the other crowdsourcers and you're giving them the answers of the first crowdsourcers and you say, okay, guys, now you need to evaluate. Does it look correct to you? Does it look like uh, not a fraud and everything? And uh, there, by this double evaluation, you're actually sorting out all of the problems. Wow, I have never heard yeah. of such method. It's, it's amazing. Uh, I think more traditionally, like maybe like 10 years ago in a um, project related to sentiment analysis, we were talking about um, double annotation but at the same time so you give the same um you know the same label uh and then you ask the human to whether they agree or not but twice and then you basically calculate the inter annotator agreement but what you just described is so brilliantly put and and sort of invented in a way uh 
Is it, was this invented at Taloka or have you seen this somewhere? In, in the... <laughs> to be honest, I don't know. <laughs> if we did that, yeah. I am super happy. But it, yeah. it doesn't seem like rocket science, yeah, but it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, also about, yeah, in inter-annotator agreement also works, especially in like some classification tasks. That's how we actually started creating these hidden assignments recently. Like, uh, as I told about them, we are called them honeypots or the golden assignment, the one with the hidden tasks, uh, which you're like um, shuffle in the data and then evaluate the, uh, re resolve the skills of people who are doing the, some certain kinds of assignments. And actually, also, we're saving these skills, and sometimes you can access them because they're already in a, on platform. They're called global skills, where you can just pre-select on your project people who already succeed in moderation, for example. That actually helped me recently a lot because I didn't have to train the crowd for my <laughs> very complex stuff. So yeah, but I stepped aside. Um, so before, like when I was even working with Toloka some time ago, uh, you had to create these specific tasks yourself. Uh, like this hidden you had to manually label them and that took some time and it was like kind of tiring because you're sitting here and you're creating like 100 like usually you need some certain amount of the, some sample of this task like at least 10 5 percent of the general like amount of the tasks on your platform on your project to evaluate how good the people are because you're just if you're like giving them 100 items to label and once you're asking uh, like if it's correct or not you can't evaluate if this person is good or bad it can be just the pure luck <laughs> so uh, labeling it by yourself was kind of you know time consuming and sad uh and uh, recently we decided okay but we have crowd why do we are doing the job of the crowd let's just create these hidden tasks by the other crowd and we can do this easily just using the interhuman agreement you're just giving them a task and you're pre-selecting the crowd with the good skills in the past, just in general, so you trust them more. And you throw, for example, 10 people on one tiny bit of a task and 10 people like labeling it without knowing what the others said. And then like to have better than one, usually some certain amount of the strong agreement comes and you know that is the right answer and you can directly pick it and already shuffle it in the other project. So you see. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, we're making the self-working mechanisms like, you know, you just throw some data in, you receive the results. Yeah, it's like <laughs> self-reinforcement or, um, yeah, I think this is amazing. And and, uh, and it also is uh, surfacing, I believe, like a feature of the locker that you cannot get with, let's say you set up an open source labeling tool that you can uh, having a specific task like moderation or um yeah, i don't know sentiment whatever uh, machine translation that you can actually ask and gather a group that will be proficient in that specific uh, space so because otherwise you're going to be wasting cycles in potentially teaching oh, yeah. people right yeah yeah i think this is something that now that we started to say in the beginning of the podcast that data is important, but also humans that annotate is important, are important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is great. Um, I still wanted to understand one building block. Um, you were talking about aggregation. 
Mm-hmm. Can you can you ag- again um, sort of restate this? What do you mean, and and what should I pay attention to as a as a user of of such a platform? Uh, so, for example, like there are different ways of uh, annotating data, and uh, sometimes you need uh, like there can be different cases when you need aggregation. Uh, so uh, aggregation is like just imagine that you receive some raw results from the human annotators. And then you need to aggregate them in some final answer that you will use for your model or for something. It can be different cases when you need it. For example, as we were talking about the in, like aggregation between humans uh, on the some some task. For example, you have a task of labeling pictures at a cat or dog, and uh, like uh, you decide that you wanna like four annotators look at it and like uh, three of them said it's a cat and the one said that it's a dog and you have these four answers and to understand that it's a cat you need to perform an aggregation so uh if it comes to classification tasks it's pretty easy i mean you can do just major vote or like major vote uh, weighted by the skills of those people but when it comes for example for aggregating like images like for example you're doing a segmentation and you need to aggregate different answers about the segmentations here it's already harder because like doing like a major work pixel wise it's a little bit of a hard work you know uh, so for that uh, usually there are like some models which are pre-designed and used and studied in crowd science uh, so aggregation of audio, aggregation of image, um, and also aggregation of these pairwise comparisons that I was talking about, uh, because this is a specifically a hard task because you have these pairwise assignments and sometimes it's like A better than B, B better than C, but C better than A, and you're having a cycle and you don't know what to do. So for that, there are existing uh, a couple of models which are based, uh, for example, noisy bread literary, which are based on the expectation maximization algorithm which assumes that laborers are actually by their skill, not the ground truth of the answers. And we're trying to estimate that to get as possible, as close to that paradigma with like a couple of iterations of this model. And in the end, it just gives you away the list of responses. Like for example, if we're counting an NBCG or some other metric, we just need a list where it says like item one is the best item 10 is the worst. So the aggregation is out of this, all of the pairwise comparisons. It will give you that list. You can implement these aggregations yourself and study them because like in crowd, like we're not the, the first ones doing crowdsourcing actually. So they're like in crowd science, there are like a lot of models presented uh, and our research team actually also studying them and implementing them. And I hope improving them. I hope I'm not praising them too much. <laughs> but you can uh, it's your it's your moment of uh, okay our okay. research team is great <laughs> yeah but uh but yeah uh we for example for aggregation we just created a tool uh, which can be used uh, paired with a platform so you don't have to think much how does it work but if you want uh, write me and i can provide you with papers <laughs> oh yeah absolutely and all the papers that you mentioned uh, during this podcast, I really would love to include as show notes as well, uh, because because I I see how how the listeners um, find the episodes educational, and they some of them uh, spent a lot of time, you know, listening through and 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 uh, and then you know reading the papers as well, or at least browsing through them. Um, 
So Jen, it's so much stuff you have shared so far. And I think um, even those who are using open source tools, like, I don't know, Cupid or Label Studio um, and others, I'm sure they can learn from what you said. But I also hope that they will uh, improve their practices by tapping into the talent behind Taloka. Um, but there is one topic that I think keeps surfacing everywhere, but also um, to some degree it becomes an overheated discussion around bias and data and how this can actually drive the inequalities in life and in, in the world. And I think by the virtue of us being in this space, we should resist this as much as possible. Um, but I, I wanted to pick your your brain on what is bias for you and how you have seen or maybe discussed uh, this in the email projects. Oh, uh, I really like this topic because, yeah, I recently uh, hosted a panel discussion about biases and I love hosting a panel discussions because you can come, you can know zero about the subject, you can ask the stupidest questions to the most awesome engineers in the field and you're returning super educated, so maybe I'll try to just to recreate what uh, people from this uh, panel discussion in Berlin said to me. Uh, but uh, as far from my understanding, there are like not two types of biases, but I, I would I consider them as a two types of biases. Uh, the one is ethical bias, uh, more related to the stuff which uh, is like the things that we shouldn't be biased on, but we are biased because of the historical data or like some other unfair like um, results of the history. So it's like the bias of the uh, skin color, the bias of the gender, the bias of some, some other. And they're here and there in the set in the big models, uh, for example, like even the DALI and GPT-3 and everything. Uh, sadly, teens they are learning on the internet available data, and the internet is a very toxic space sometimes. <laughs> Especially like I still like the stories of the chatbots, which were like learned on Twitter, and then they are like so offensive that nobody can <laughs> leave them out in the open like business communication world. So these models, of course, have these ethics biases, and that should be controlled very much. And that's why we have like the fairness uh fairness topic in the eye and that's exactly like i actually i studied it recently i love my uh masters because i'm revisiting all of the topics in the ml so i'm feeling like uh, when i'm talking about it i'm feeling like i am literally coming from the academic background <laughs> it's just the masters and the fairness algorithms they're like pretty much set up how you can evaluate how you can try to make your data less biased or just test it on the fairness uh, but yeah, it's still here, um, sadly. And the second thing, uh, which, and of course, there are approaches how to avoid it fully, but uh, sadly, we're constructing new biases here and there. So we're getting rid of the one and we're constructing new. And the second one, they are more like behavioral biases. Um, maybe they're like less harmful in the general because I consider ethical biases being very harmful. Uh, like when we're creating AI systems related to jurisdiction or like to some other things, these biases can be crucial. 
and also, by the way, uh, the same biases. Uh, oh, I can. I, I remember the story about COVID. Uh, like uh, with the COVID, when people tried, it's not like that ethical bias, but it's a bias, and it was very crucial. So when uh, with COVID, people tried to at the beginning when it started, and everybody was panicking. Uh, so people started to thinking maybe they can do something AI, like some ML model, which will help to. Uh, recognize if the person has pneumonia or like is it like caused by COVID or not in the lungs and uh, there already was data from China because it started earlier there and there were like a lot of uh, AI and the model engineers working on that uh, but the problem was that the data was biased and it wasn't cleaned and sorted out because people didn't have so much time I mean it was very like a crucial moment uh, so, because of that, uh, models were working very biased and bad because they, for example, were predicting that if the person on the, uh, like the scan, if the person is kind of in the position of lying, uh, she or he, then they have COVID. Uh, but if, if it's in the standing position, uh, they don't have it just because the per people who were lying and taking photos, they were just in the worst medical condition in general, because like when you can't stand up, that means that you're pretty ill, you know? So uh, it was just a bias in the data because it wasn't balanced. And that is the result of bias, which you need to monitor and control. Well, that's why you can't leave it in the open world. And uh, yeah, so the behavior biases, it's more like about when like, for example, with the search engine, I think I touched it, the position bias. It's uh, when you're just trained, to click on the like first three elements that you see because you're you're so overwhelmed with information that you don't have like a power to go through the tens of pages and select what exactly do you want. Or there are like some other biases. Um, for example, we know that uh, one behavior thing that people have it's uh, it's interesting uh, thing. It's called uh, it's called uh, choice overload. It's like uh, when in recommendation systems, people actually oh, like in restaurants, people prefer to see something with a bigger menu, with a bigger recommendation, because they think, oh, it's enriched, it's it's nice, I would love it. But the more choice you have, uh, the more cost you're spending of, uh, on decision, your inner cost, your evaluation cost. And at some point it becomes just uh, not, like not feasible, not useful. Like you need less um, items to select better choice. At some point you just lose attention and everything. And that's another like thing which co comes from our behavior and which biases a lot of instruments and which biases a lot of like models and which we need to take into account or otherwise we won't be successful with implementing it. Yeah, absolutely. I, on this um, paralysis, paralysis of choice, would you think that reducing the number of, of options um, would um, bias our system in some way? Like strictly speaking, do we actually introduce bias by reducing the number of options? Oh, I pre I'm pretty sure we do. Uh, but uh, like, as I said, sometimes you can use biases like uh, not all of the biases. Uh, I would say they're that harmful. Sometimes you can just like try to use them for like having more um, good uh, outcome. Of course, I'm not talking about the ethical biases. God, no. Uh, but with like, for example, with reducing the choice amount, um, 
of course, you are biased people towards like uh, the, the what you offer. For example, it depends on what you offer in this limited choice. And uh, if you're like offering them the most popular, of course, they can be stuck in the pool of selecting the same items without changing their preferences, which they would like to. But in general, for them, it would be easier to select something that they really prefer by the whole characteristics. So even biasing people here, you're actually kind of helping them with the choice process. So I would say it was a general recommendation, like after 10 or 15 uh, items, as far as I recall, uh, your choice overload becomes too much. So you just can't like, you know, I hate these restaurants when you have any menu, sushi, pizza, Indian <laughs> food, Mexican food, your gut, oh my God, I'm so hungry, but I can't choose. Yeah. It's like no uh, focus and maybe no uh, face of the restaurant in a way. But at the same time, I, I'm i pretty sure there are customers who are like in haste and they don't have time to drill and understand what is this local cuisine here. Just give me that pizza or burger or whatever and I will flip through the menu, right? But but I, I, I really wanted to relate to what you said and and i think bias is not always negative and i think it's important to understand that sometimes in certain circumstances it could be actually bringing positive impact and the the example you gave is one of that right um so but at the same time whatever i show on the screen in the search engine you already talked about it, it's a click bias right what i show in that order you know in majority of countries in the world, we'll go top to bottom, left to right, and uh, we will click in that order. Um, uh, but at the same time, anything that I say, for example, now, I already bias you to think in that direction. And if I choose another strategy and I start talking about snow or <laughs> something else, your mind will tune to a completely different topic, right? And you will be biased again without realizing that I do this. Uh, so the same actually will apply, I think, to the annotation and labeling project, right? So whatever I show, in which order I show, which questions I ask, will bias the annotators to, besides all other factors, like if I overload with them with questions, they will be tired and really not give me value. But if I didn't do that, the order of the tasks might bias them and many other items. Can you talk a bit more about that? And also, is there some silver bullet that can solve this or at least improve? Okay, from, from my position, which is a very, very subjective opinion, I would say bias is a very human thing. So even creating like a big sentient AI perfect model trained on uh, purely human data in the amount that we have it now, even if we increase the amount, we can't get rid of the biases, which are we are so afraid of. So we need to <laughs> go to the sub system with robots creating robots, creating robots, and then maybe we'll get rid of our own biases because as you know, human factor, it's a really like a thing. We're just making mistakes sometimes just because we're like, not as perfect and attentive, so we're just biased as this. But I would say with the human labeling, you see, you're doing product uh, from biased humans to biased humans. <laughs> so <laughs> at least yeah. uh, the thing that's why I was talking about the explicitly, like when you're predicting something by the 
their clicks in the online experiments, you're introducing even more, like you're introducing a third person in this chain, a developer, who does assumptions about other people's biases, sometimes without knowing their culture, or like, as you said, in search engines, we read like from top to bottom, from left to right, but sometimes in some cultures, they have different way of writing, from reading from right to left, or maybe they have like designing, um, there are different people which like different types of the search, like based on age, maybe sometimes some people are like seen uh, less or there are people with color blindness and they need some other results because like it's also depends on how do you see everything. So uh, when only one person uh, like assumes, especially developer, like I was asking on the panel a question, like should we all, we all be psychologists and philosophers to create the systems? Because like when the developer decides what to do it sometimes this person is not educated about like psychology of the human behavior and it might give some mistakes so that's why i think human labeling wins it's not like there are people are who are like psychologists and philosophers but you are giving the same task to the same crowd you can like do a pre-filtering of the crowd for example by the same target audience that you're interested in by the language by the culture by the interests by like for example you have a comfort flower select people who like flowers, like who work with flowers or ask them, do you like flowers? And then send them to this task. And by this, you're at least like trying to model the same behavior with actual like uh, people by this, uh, having the same distribution, like maybe small, like subsample of the same distribution of people for your target users. And you're not deciding for them yourself. So I would say the best recommendation is to think about filtering your crowd for your assignments, thinking of who you want to be satisfied by your product and asking the people related to that to do the evaluation, to do the testing. Yeah, it's just one thought came to mind that in principle, if we considered, you know, annotation process as building some kind of mathematical function that we're trying to with which we're trying to fit into the reality then in principle we could have uh, built a perfect uh, annotation you know com composition project that would fit into the reality uh, replicate the same biases that exist today and earn money right that would be kind of the wrong way to go i hope companies do not consider doing that right <laughs> I need. I mean, I need to say that uh, even uh, like I think uh, even Toloka, if I am not mistaken, it actually uses as a support a little bit of machine learning uh, labeling. So we're learning on our crowd in each project, and we're like providing some sublabeling with the machine learning, which learned by the biases of the target auditory and tries to emulate the same behavior. But it's still not like the evil sentient AI robotics because it's mostly manually labeled. But I need to know, uh, no, I need to mention that also humans who are like labeling assignments, sometimes they are very educated and very smart and they are very willing to crack the system. And actually when you want to crack the system, you're becoming super talented. So I saw some people creating some algorithms which are labeling the assignments for them, emulating the human time of labeling, human way of like moving the mouse, a human way of understanding instruction, and recently I was asked how we're blocking this type of people, but I'm saying why to block this type of people? They're getting so close to, to actual labeling that I wouldn't even stop them. <laughs> yeah, 
and I'm sure we can learn learn from them uh, because uh, and you already touched on this topic that another big area of research is um, how we can I believe it's called gamification or like you break the machine learning model by supplying certain sequence of actions um, and input such that it will unlock some doors or whatever, right? Maybe you receive uh, a loan that you are not supposed to and things like that. Um, yeah, this is interesting. And do you think I'm asking the same question as, as I see on your event? Um, do you think that unbiased data is attainable? So there is a zero bias. To be honest, I don't think so. I I don't believe so. Like uh, I might be incorrect, and the experts said like different uh, experts like who was sitting with me on the panel discussion, and I of of course I asked the same question because it's very interesting. Like, is it only our thing? Why we're in this loop of creating and fixing biases, like a, you know, like a chipmunk? <laughs> but. Um, I personally don't think so because like a bias is a very human thing where you can try to get rid of one you're creating another, but it's not bad. Uh, it's not bad. We just need to get rid of the uh, actually like dangerous biases like epic and other ones. And with the rest, we just need to understand how to deal with them. And uh, as humans, we can recognize some biases which are harmful and that's good. That's why, for example, we need um, uh, the uh, manual evaluation of the AI systems, which are trained now, because they are having, they're very like nicely trained, but they are producing biases and they can't detect what they are doing. So sometimes they can be hurtful. So that's why, like from my perspective, uh, like uh, big models alone uh, still can be like used now, even if they're existing and they're like impressing us very much. They need some on top verification. Yeah, exactly. And this is where the human labeling comes in. Um, I think the flip, the flip side, or, or if I would flip around my question about getting the, or your question rather, <laughs> of getting the um, completely unbiased set, you could also say, could we actually source the data set that, that uh, contains all the little biases or little diversities that exist in the world, right? Uh, or maybe not, okay, not in the world, but in that domain of operation that you are you are in your business uh, and maybe formulating it that way gives me a lever to start thinking okay what is it that i'm missing in in the data and of course this is the most challenging question to know what i don't know what i'm missing right so it's equally hard but it's probably more in the trajectory of uh, amassing the data set i i would say that I actually heard some approaches which are working on that, like specifically taking into account bias, very biased data on the like in the domain and uh, seeing how your algorithm will perceive it and actually catching the mistake by it because yeah, we we have uh, we can account the biased data and there are like some guidelines uh, how to notice biases in your data or models. So here we can try to at least approach this task from your perspective, yeah. Yeah, sounds great. Hey, Janie, I really enjoyed talking to you and I think we could talk uh, forever on this topic. Uh, but I really love asking the question of why, which is um, tapping into your motivation. You did say in the beginning that 
you know all the stars positioned correctly in a way and you got the the dream job but at the same time you still wake up every morning and you say okay what will i do today what drives me why it drives me so what drives you to do what you do data advocate nml i would say i don't want to like start a story with reflecting on how I like I woke up one day and realized that my my heart belongs to AI and everything but I would say like a little little moments in my life where I had to write an essay about can computers think when I was applying to university when I had to explain to my parents what is AI and why I'm doing it uh, when I compared the other like positions when I saw some questions which people in general like asking seeing Dali and GPT-3 uh, when I visited some industrial conferences and compared them with the researching conferences and noticed that people are fascinated by the models and the architectures when, but when it comes to like taking it down to development and to actually helping people people struggle with doing some simple things like uh, not simple but basic things like uh, providing the date not interesting they're like they sound less interesting but they're actually very crucial like providing the right data curing the, the bias monitoring it uh, not just creating a proof of concept it, it bugged me so much because i see so many cool models ideas architectures around uh, creating like insane applications but uh, not always they're coming to production and not always they're start like helping people and everything and i would say i really would love to i love to in general like seeing something starting working like it, it, it's a very satisfactory thing so i i choose my like uh, my path i would say to approach people with talking about data uh, and how can it help actually to train uh, the models and uh, make them closer to the production uh, make them closer to being actually here and working good and uh, helping people out uh, with these magnificent ideas created by researchers oh yeah that sounds so cool a very deep thank you for sharing this it's like uh i think in, in many ways it's like uh the dream maybe of um creating that companion that can think the same way we think and it's not human um because we are could also as a as a, as a humanity we do reproduce and so on but um we also challenge ourselves and others in what is possible what is what are the limits of our, of our intelligence uh, or you know are there any tasks that are still waiting there to be solved and can be solved with ai i think it's it's magnificent for it's sure it's magnificent i am waiting to see if somebody some model will finally win the lobner prize and pass the turing test so <laughs> i'm yeah. waiting for chat gpt <laughs> <laughs> yes maybe it will be uh fine-tuned on some something like flower search or something <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. on human labeling uh, with toloka i am pretty yes. sure <laughs> exactly exactly um and yeah and traditionally um of course we will we will link everything we can link about toloka but um if you were to announce something to the audience maybe how they can 
get closer to the platform, you know, start uh, playing around. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I have three things that I really want you to, to announce. Firstly, if you, if you want to talk about just like, do we need manual labeling? Do you need manual labeling? Do you need data labeling? Do you need transfer learning with crowdsourcing? Do you want to just use crowdsourcing and think about it uh, to join our community? Because we talk just in general there about ML stuff, about AI, about crowdsourcing, about data-centric and model-centric approach. And there we can concretely talk about like some topic which concern to you, to your company or like to your business and just talk. Uh, and also we have two initiatives for like uh, education and for researchers. If somebody is interested to check some hypothesis on crowdsourcing, for example, some questionnaires, some ethical stuff, some gathering of the data sets for your own tool, or like you want to create some education or like to teach a course over the crowdsourcing to your students. We have two forms for applications where we can provide you some promo codes of using crowdsourcing for free and to play around and maybe to start liking it as I do. And I truly like it because like uh, when you can gather a 12K data set in, in one day and start liking it. This is mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah that, that's me. That's it. Thank you very much. That's Dima. fantastic. Thank you. It was mag that was magical. Thank you. I'm Thank sorry you, for Jane. being like a very talkative person, but I'm always like this, so be afraid of me. <laughs> no, it's 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 your character, it's your energy, it's um it's your experience, and it's something that speaks up um, you know, beside you controlling it. I think it's 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 important, it's amazing, and that's how it should be. I think I really, really enjoyed talking to you, Jenny, today. I hope this is not the last time we can record another one and another one. Um and all the best with your Christmas vacation. Um, oh, thank you. And recharging, and uh, all the best with Taloka. Or Taloka. Thank you very much. I keep emphasizing ah, you can all do the it. syllables. You, <laughs> you can do it uh, however you like. Actually, we <laughs> we we approve. <laughs> yeah, thank you, uh, and I hope the audience uh, got that magic tune as well. And. Everyone will also have uh, time to recharge uh, during the Christmas and New Year break. And we will continue from here. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. Bye-bye.